When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue, and don't you bring that cardboard baby in here! Joining me is the movie star named after a tree, Dolly Alderton. Oh, hello. Oh, hello. It's a Friday afternoon. I'm hanging out my arse because I got too drunk on Zoom last night with Elizabeth Day, who has never watched one episode of Sex and the City because she went to Cambridge and has a meaningful life. Well, that seems to be, for someone who's a... The main thing is called How to Fail. I think this is one of the chief failures she has yet to have mentioned. <laughs> Caroline's not been drinking for a week and she's one beer in. <laughs> Failure to interact with the female zeitgeist. Elizabeth? So before we get into the main themes and plot arcs of season four, why don't you remind us why we're here? We are here to talk about every series of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. This is not an episode-by-episode analysis. If that's what you're after, Juno Dawson does one on a brilliant podcast called So I Got to Thinking. This is not a judgment or a breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show, although we will talk about them if they come up. This is not a place where we roll our eyes about things that people have already rolled their eyes about before. Listen back to episode one. We love Carrie Bradshaw. We're never going to apologise for loving Carrie Bradshaw. I'm sorry. We will, this in is, fact, go to like a pretzel-shaped yoga positions in order to like legitimise Carrie's <laughs> behaviour. <laughs> this is not going to be jam-packed with trivia, but if you're interested in trivia, we recommend Sex and the City and Us by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong, a book that is so forensic on Sex and the City that there's an entire chapter about uh, Sex in the City's lasting impact on a cupcake cafe that they did one scene. I believe the title of the chapter is Sex and the City and the Economy. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why Elizabeth Day hasn't watched it. <laughs> Sentence <Fair>. like that. <laughs> we are interested in stepping back and looking at each season as an individual piece of work and looking at the themes we love themes character journeys (laughs) and lasting messages of it we don't know the most about sex in the city but what do we do caroline we feel the most about sex in the city we are (laughs) sentimental about it and i gotta say i found myself the most sentimental about season four me too i think i cried more in this than i have in the previous three already And I don't know whether that's sort of a combination of like lockdown going on too long, me being shut in too long, me thinking too hard about this show. (laughs) But there are so many moments that just broke my heart and really fulfilled me in different ways in this season. 
shall I, can I, shall I do sort of, for people who aren't doing a massive rewatch the way we are, I'm going to run down sort of the big movements of the season, which is the return and the eventual demise of both Aiden and Trey, Miranda's pregnancy, uh, Maria the painter and Richard Wright, who we hate, <laughs> and, uh, Carrie and Biggs' odyssey of a fake friendship that includes some <laughs> some brief real moments, and what I consider the great deleted scene of Sex and the City's run, which is when exactly did Aiden and Steve become friends? It's an absolute riddle to all of us. I also love as well that like. They obviously wanted to have a reason to keep Aiden in the periphery of Carrie's life, which mm-hmm. alerts her to this idea of maybe they should get back together. I think it just must have been like a long Friday afternoon in the writer's room. <laughs> just like, oh, you know, men, they become friends, don't they? They just- <laughs> that's the thing they just they have beers and they talk about soccer we'll just make them friends like it's such a lazy yeah they've got dogs yeah we'll make them best friends (laughs) we'll make them best friends it's such a lazy tool and I think as well like what I really love is they obviously couldn't find because Aiden is so not in Carrie's Manhattan and Carrie's world that Mm. only like low-key guy that's also in the show is Steve so they make them best mates and I love that Carrie they almost make a comment on how piss poor a decision it is editorially when Carrie is like, since when are they friends? <laughs> like, <laughs> Carrie is as confused as all the audience. <laughs> I think before we go any further, I think we outlined it at the, at the end of last episode, but I think we should say, I think this is like miles and miles far and away the greatest series of sex in the city that we're discussing today and why is that do you think i think it's uh and it was reconfirmed to me re-watching it i think it's mm. other than like some dodgy puns i think it is indistinguishable from a from a really solid drama i think it's interesting that you picked up on the fact that trey and aiden are returning characters returning love interests in this season because i think uh long-term investment as we know narratively um in two people it's just more dramatic and it feels Mm. more um serious and it feels like the stakes are higher so I think that knowing that both of those people Carrie and Charlotte are giving it another go with with um these two men I think that does amp up the drama and it makes it feel much more grown up I think that the main kind of my dissertation for this uh your great American novel my great American novel is that I think this series is about aging and friendship and aging is a pressure cooker for friendship. And I think that there's a reason why this series feels so much more serious and poignant. I cry a lot in, in this series. I think it's like the most weepy series. Mm. And I think it's because it's about, it's about those friendships, like the big moments of tension and make or break really are between the girls, this series. And that is like way more compelling, I think, than the romance. I completely agree. And it's so, it really makes sense to me as well about how the further you get into your 30s and you've known these people for a long time, um, 
your, you know, your friends and, and the, the, the people you've, you know, it's corny to say it, the people you've chosen to be your family, especially if you're in this urban setting where everyone tends to be away from their, their you know, families of origin, is, you know, people start, parents start to die. Yeah. People start to get yeah. sick. Yeah. Like things, like real life stuff starts to happen. Totally. You have the first character lose a parent, which is a big part mm. of a person's 30s in a friendship group and, and how mm. they will react to that grief when Miranda loses her mother. You have a character giving up work, which is obviously not really a relatable thing that happens in friendship groups with women in mm. 2021. Um, but I suppose what that story represents is about accepting different paths and accepting different lifestyle choices yeah. and different life choices and, and different politics, I suppose, and how everyone reacts to that. You have Miranda's pregnancy storyline. That's the one looking back for me that feels so real now in a way that I think I didn't understand as a, as a young woman of when you get into your 30s and and people start wanting babies or not wanting babies or trying for babies or accidentally having babies, you know, babies, fertility, it's a primal thing. It's a mm. really, really, you can't anticipate what it can do to a group of women who all love each other. You know, I, I'm sure, you know, I know lots of women who've had fertility issues and they basically just can't be around the pe the women they love the most mm. who are either pregnant or have children. It's like, it's not, it's so beyond, any reason and it's so beyond and like a question of love it's it's primal deep suffering they cannot be around yeah. and and the charlotte's reaction to miranda when when she's struggling to get pregnant and miranda announces she's accidentally got pregnant it just feels so raw and real and sad to me oh it i find it devastating i find that episode so devastating and so beautiful and maybe we should just talk about it now um is this thing of like, and this is, and and what's even more painful is that this is the second time it's happened to Charlotte, yeah. Who who, and like, and this and this particularly this era of Charlotte who's all about like her nineteen fifties cut dresses and her Alice bands, and she enters every situation she goes into with such a childlike sense of wonder and of softness and of need and of eagerness. And of a sense, and she really is a person who like, no matter what happens to her, she'll always believe in optimism and in trying your best. And if you want something hard enough, you can just get it. And if you work hard enough and you're true of heart. And yeah. to have it first happen with Trey's impotence, which yeah. is so devastating to her. And so unwrites her entire idea of like what love and sex is. And then she, and so she had that moment in season three with Samantha where it's like, you know, Samantha gets this thing really easily and she just barely has to think about it and she's shooting her mouth off about it. Whereas for Charlotte, it's the struggle. And then you get this echo of it again where Charlotte is in, they're in, they're in the, the cafe again and it's like, she's talking about doing her, how she wants, how badly she wants it, how she knows the problem is her. The problem isn't Trey. She knows it's her. She spent all of her twenties trying not to get pregnant and here she is, blah, 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 all this. And then her and Miranda, like Carrie and Miranda are sort of cutting eyes at each other throughout this scene. So it's so well composed. It's so well done and it's so yeah. real. It's, as you say, it's such a good drama. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's the kind of drama that you rarely see anymore because now when people say TV drama, what they mean is dead woman. 
totally. Like they don't yes. they don't mean emotional stakes. And this is yeah. fucking emotional stakes. And it's it's Charlotte's like, look, you guys are making eyes, you think I'm pathetic. And of course that would be her reaction. You think I'm pathetic, you think I'm weak, you think I'm silly for even wanting these things that you guys don't want. And then Miranda's forced to admit that she's pregnant. And she also has to admit that she is, you know, at that point in the series, planning on getting a termination. And this reaction that Charlotte has is just so, it breaks your heart Mm. and it breaks her heart. And then like she goes through this whole thing with it. And I think as well what happens in this, oh God, I'm actually misting thinking about it. I know, I am as well. I am as well. I am as well. Because it is just like, I think you have such a, a truly watching it now. You know, that moment where, where Carrie says, Don't, she, all she can think about is babies. All she can think about is babies. It just... So, yeah. Yeah. But there's this bit where it's like... Because that whole episode is that, like, and Cynthia Nixon, I think... Like, Cynthia Nixon's comedy acting up to this point in the show has been incredible. Like, we talked about last episode of, like, mm. I'm no Mina Suvari, but I'm great in bed. <laughs> But Cynthia Nixon, <laughs> as a comi- as a dramatic actress, is... Strongest of all of them, I think. Strongest of all of them. And in this particular season, unbelievable. Like... Yeah. Um, and, and this thing of like... So that episode that we're talking about, she it's like her coming to terms with whether or not she wants to have this baby. And, and, and it's not even like an open discussion. It's more like she's like, I'm going to have this abortion. But then we see the workings happening kind of behind her eyes of like, mm. will she have it? Mm. Won't I? Can I have this? Can't I? I don't, I barely have time to schedule this abortion. How can I have a child? But there's this kind of lovely, this beautiful moment where she runs into Charlotte and Charlotte tries to blank her because she just can't face looking at her. Yeah. And then it happens to be on the same morning that Charlotte finds out that she's infertile. And and they have this sort of oh my god I'm you know I'm so sorry or whatever mm. and and Charlotte's like it's fine I just have to go and Miranda says okay well I'm just gonna follow you home yeah. in case you need someone to talk to <laughs> it's beautiful it's, it's really totally beautiful. beautiful now you start talking because if I talk anymore I'm gonna cry okay <laughs> well I just I think it really keys in as well to this thing of like. You know, and we have to be very aware when we're talking about this stuff. And I, and I hope that the listeners understand that Caroline and I are, know that this is not every woman. It's not every woman for whom babies is in their head mm-hmm. in their 30s. It is a lot of women and it is me. And I know it is you at times. And, you know, I look at my mantelpiece now and it's all just pictures of my godchildren and it's baby's feet on. Yeah. <laughs> you know in paint on tiles and it is it's painful and it is it's it's a, it's like I can't you would never have been able to anticipate it it's so beyond reason mm. and that's why I so forgive th- that character and the way she reacts because Charlotte is so awful what she says to Miranda yeah. but and I think maybe when I was younger I didn't understand it but I understand it so much more now that the way that both of them react to each other throughout that episode mm. and throughout it's the whole just, season actually because that sort of yeah. the, dynamic, the dynamic really continues like through to the shower and all that yeah and that moment in that episode where you know she walks behind her home 
and she knows that and and the fact that Miranda is being understanding at that point of like yeah it's I can't ask her to this is so hard for her I have to just be there for her even though I know that my mere presence makes her feel terrible about herself and then at the end Charlotte thinks that Miranda's had the abortion and she comes round with flowers and says I'm sorry like oof (laughs) this is like we're living up to the title tonight sentimental in the fucking city man I know it I just it's just so representative of that up and down of how of how I really do think that like babies and fertility and it, it it really can cause a lot of issues in friendships in your thirties in a way that just isn't really yeah. talked about yeah and and it's it is one of those things as well where I'm like these are just such great actresses um and it and it does make me think like. This was still in an era where TV acting was seen as being a different thing to film acting, and film acting was seen as being a bit more prestigious. And it makes me sad because it's like these two were doing incredible work, and you know, and, and sort of it ends with with um, Charlotte going, you know, finding out that Marina didn't have the abortion, and her immediate response is, "Oh God!" Oh, God. her immediate response is, <laughs> "We're having a baby." But I said, I remember saying something like that to one of my best friends when she told me she was having a baby. I remember saying, oh my God, we're going to have a baby. And she was like, yeah. And she said to me, you know, it will be your baby as well. This will be like your baby. And it's like that when you can reach down deep into that sense of, of um, you know, family and extended family and love it's so powerful. No one, I think it's a line in um, in uh, a Richard Curtis. I think it's a, it might be a line in about time. No one can ever prepare you for how much you're, how invested you're going to be in the love that you have for your friends mm. having their own children yeah. and having their own family. It completely blindsides you. You have no idea what that's going to be like. It's amazing. It is amazing. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> Pour yourself another drink, mate. <laughs> I know, but like, okay, while we're on this, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna stay incredibly sincere, but less sort of like bawling my eyes out. <laughs> um, <laughs> when because I think we're we're sort of in the middle of Miranda's pregnancy now, and so we might as well sort of like continue on with it. Um, yeah, I really, ha- I really have to talk about this that whole episode of um, her and an abortion and them talking about abortion and it happens kind of in the middle of the season um, and of Carrie going to, um, what's that restaurant where the guy works where she got pregnant when she was 21, 22. All I can remember is Samantha saying, oh yeah, that waiter at TGI Fridays. <laughs> I remember it's not TGI Fridays. It's the saloon. It's the, the saloon. saloon. The saloon. <laughs> and Carrie, Carrie turns up in a lace parasol (laughs) it's just even by her standards so mental so extra oh and that guy gives a great performance as well he calls her Cherie Cherie yeah it's so good Cherie I think it might be one of my contenders for the clangor that when she goes to confront him having not seen him for what 13 years she drops her menu and says well, hello there. 
Well, hello there. I do find that sort of very, very believable though, because it's an it's sort of a one night stand. She would have forgotten had she not had an abortion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but of course, yeah, he doesn't yeah. know about the abortion, and so naturally, he doesn't remember it either because it was clearly this extremely fleeting thing. And I just when I saw that episode as a young person and throughout it they they talk about abortion in a way I had never seen or Me heard too. Me in too. my life and to be quite frank I haven't really seen since you know I do think that there's you know there's a little bit of it in like something like girls and it does sort of come up in things but the way it is completely turned over analyzed talked through in this episode is incredible to me and particularly it was incredible to me as a teenager who was growing up in Ireland where all we did was talk about abortion yeah yeah like literally I, I, I really can't overstate enough to you how much Irish teenage girls of my generation all we talked about was sex and all we talked about was what would happen if we had sex which was yeah. what if we had what if we had to have an abortion we used to keep these like running tallies in our heads of parents of each other that we thought would be cool enough to take us to England if we needed to get an abortion. We thought about it constantly. We were constantly reading about it. There was constantly like features and op-eds in the newspaper about girls our age and older who had to get abortions. They were almost always written under pseudonyms. They um, were constantly about, you know, abortion, even like the the... And like when I was a uh, teenager, there was obviously a huge push for you know pro-choice and and repealing the Eighth Amendment in Ireland, which thankfully has been repealed in the last couple of years. Um, but there was all this push for repealing it. But even then, the context with which it was played under was always abortion is a sad and terrible thing, and the people who have abortions think about it every day and they regret it for the rest of their life. And so there was always this understanding for me as a young person that if you had to have an abortion, it would ruin your soul. It would it would, yeah. it would decay at you well into adult life. And for me to see these characters on screen talk about their abortions in a way that really didn't figure into their present day lives at all was fucking revolutionary. Like yeah. it was, I can't even overstate like how that was a radical act of television. Yeah. You know, did it hit you in the same way at all? I remember finding it interesting that Carrie Carrie fights with the misogyny around abortion and the apparent morality around abortion. I remember the thing that I really remember thinking when I was younger, because obviously I just had this privilege Caroline of growing up in a country mm. where like lots of my friends ha- had abortions it was it was kind of quite normalized it was frightening and mm. um it wasn't you know I rem- still remember conversations with my elders who said to me it's sort of very scarring and traumatic and the worst thing that you could mm. that could happen to a woman I definitely do remember some of those conversations but it was normalized because I, I did I did know girls who had them um but the thing I remember finding really interesting and I, I still do think is possibly the most interesting thing in in that examination of abortion in that 
episode is the fact that she lies to Aiden. She lies to her boyfriend yeah. about the fact that she had one. And then she, and then she comes clean and then she lies twice While more. she's coming clean. I yeah. love that. Yeah. About how old she was. She says, yeah, yeah I had an abortion except I was... I was 18. I was, she said I was 22. Yeah. Two. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I remember I remember finding that interesting cuz that has definitely been a dynamic in relationships that I've had of you know my sexual past being a bit of a problem or me thinking it's a bit of a problem, me projecting that mm. it might be a bit of a problem. So that that was the thing that I remember finding yeah, worrying, interesting, truthful. Yeah. God, we're really tackling the heavy stuff, right? Oh, these are capital T themes. I was going to ask you, Caroline, about what your great American novel is. So we know that mine is about friendship and aging. What is yours for series four? So glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the great American novel of series four for me is the realization with all four of the characters, that men are people. And I don't think they've had to reckon with this idea before. So coming up to this, like in the previous three seasons, there have been like long-term love interests. There's been Steve, we've loved him. There's been Aiden, we've loved him. There's been Big, we feel okay about him. Um, You know, we've met Trey before, but like they've all kind of been projections or stencils or like these people who have like they have funny quirks but they don't really have full lives yes and obviously we have lots of male characters who appear for one or maybe two episodes and um and really they exist to sort of showcase a kind of you know straight man behavior that the writers find funny and the girls find bewildering but by virtue of the show's length at this point, and also by virtue of the fact that, in, as you said, in order to create great drama, you need to create great characters who we believe in. Yeah. And, um, you know, these these four women over the course of this series with both new characters and old characters, that it's that kind of realisation. And, and Carrie says it to Aiden when Big starts calling her when they get back together, which is she kind of shrugs at him and she goes he's in my life now and it's Mm. that thing of like in this series the men are no longer props or things to project your ideas onto they're people and people are weak and strange and fragile and funny and lovable and disappointing and all the things that your you know all, all the things that your your friends are you know because this these four women have been existing on an island that basically exists only of the four of them yeah and only and they are utterly aware of each other's complexity but they don't really give credit to the complexity of others beautiful what an american <laughs> novel you are so right you are so right they completely understand the complexities and the baggage of each other. And they have not yet been able to extend that courtesy and empathy to the men who they date and are, and are yeah. in love with. Totally, yes. totally, totally. And that's actually why I really enjoy the episodes where Aiden and Carrie are living together. I think it's, what, three episodes? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's the most real 
any of the characters ever feel because Carrie is living a very rarefied, idealised life of what a single woman is. You know, she's always... All of them are when they're single. They're always just, Mm. like, nipping out in their Dolce & Gabbana dresses, like, hailing a cab, and then going to these amazing events with these, like, men that they met, like, New Yorker cartoonists or (laughs) famous architects or whatever, who they just, like, picked up in line for a cappuccino. Like, it's so... Look, it's it's delicious. It's delicious and we love it. And that's why it appeals so much to teenage girls, I think, because that's a very exciting idea of what being a single woman is. It's obviously not real. And actually, there's something for me that really humanises that protagonist in the episodes where she lives with Aiden and you see just the reality. It's like the most accessible, I think, emotionally accessible and lifestyle accessible that Sex and the City ever gets in terms of depicting what what a love and a sex life is of just like... I just find them so real though. And I don't, I'm so glad it's only a few episodes because that's not why we tune in for Sex and the City. We tune in for Sex yeah. and the City for escapism. But the idea of being exposed to a man's vulnerability by having such close, proxi- intimate proximity. And I think Car- Carrie says she's never lived with a man before. Yes. Which yeah. brings me great comfort because I'm 32 and I've never lived with a man before. And that idea of understanding like, oh, men are human I think it can be summarized in a very trivial way of when she goes through Aiden's toiletry bag in a row and she says oh my god you use Rogate you use like a hair stimulant hair growth stimulant and he does he does this because he's not a great comic actor I don't think I don't think he's given a chance to be a great comic actor with that I don't think he's very I I don't think John Corbett is that good to be honest (laughs) do you not I just don't think he's very talented there I said it (laughs) (laughs) okay Fine, fine, fine. He's talented. Um, but he's, he's very, he's very funny in that scene. I think where he's like, "It's preventative," and he can see he's so riled up. And I've had those. Every woman who's ever loved a man in a long-term way know what those moments are like, where their male pride is pierced so, so potently, and 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 it's, you know, yeah, it is a real reminder that men, they're just like us. <laughs> And as well, I love that episode. I think she is fantastic in it. When um, when oh, she's it's great. This, this thing of like, he's bought the flat next door. Very relatable, of course. <laughs> your boyfriend just <laughs> cash buying your flat and the flat next door. Okay. <laughs> um, and, now I get why she fancies Aiden. <laughs> ah, yes. His Aiden Shaw, secret millionaire. Um. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he has to move in all of his boxes and they can, you know, they have to wait to move in there. And it it feels very, that bit feels very real, this kind of thing of close quarters and whatever. And she's sort of like really annoyed by him and how close he is and how his shit is everywhere. And there's a point where it kind of all reaches breaking point and she goes, shut up. (laughs) It's so good. So good. Shut up, you with the, like, why don't you just, why don't you, she's like, I gotta get out of here, and you, you stay here with your shoe, your shit, and your shoe-eating <laughs> dog, putting on your speed stick, and putting on Rogaine. It's so, do you know, when I watch that, I'm like, I bet that is Sarah Jessica Parker feeling like she can finally bring years and years and years of marriage because she's been married for so long um into that part because like that the the scenes that are like domestics between carrie and aiden i really do think are the most naturalistic scenes Mm. that you ever see 
Carrie doing? And it must be like, <laughs> she must be doing a bit of callback with Matthew Broderick in the brownstone, <laughs> having a row about boxes or whatever. And the other scene where I think that that is done so, so well, and it's the, it's a time where I just so heavily relate to Carrie because I've seen seen how I, I know that I would act this way with a boyfriend is when her laptop stops working. Ah, yes. My motherboard myself, our favourite episode. And Aiden tries to be helpful. Mm. She's just a horrible fucking brat to him. And there is something really interesting there, I think, about like the way that you act with a partner, it is different to the way that you act with your friends. Yeah. You know, that there is an immediacy of expressing feeling and there is a kind of punch bagginess that, that that's very easy to fall into when you're in such an intimate relationship. That like I often when I've been having rows with boyfriends before, I've thought, God, my friends would be quite shocked, I think, if they you know, I would not row with yes. my friends like this at all. And Carrie would not ever row with the girls the way that she reacts with Aiden in that scene, which is him just being really helpful. And her, basically, he can't say anything that's right. It's interesting that you say that because when I showed that episode to Gav, he was so repulsed by Aiden's behaviour. Interesting. He, he found it really gross. He was literally like covering his hands with his eyes and he was just like, Mate, leave her alone. <laughs> leave her he alone. He just knows. He just he knows. knows. <laughs> yes. And, I, and I, I asked him, like, why he was, like, reacting so viscerally to Aiden. And he's like, it's this sort of profound helpiness that, yes. that he's like, I think he, like, he, Aiden is to him what Carrie is to us in that he recognizes mm. his own bullshit magnified way bigger. It's like this idea yeah. of, like, helping and being a good guy, but actually just being. Like in his head, I'm not saying he's at it this way, but like cloying or overeager, and you're just you're getting actually too much in someone's space, and actually yeah. they want to sort this out by themselves. Um, and he really reacted. So I think it's really interesting that like yeah. we are. I think as women, we are used to sort of like battering carry around, but actually, but that bit when they're in tech support and she's wrapped her laptop in the pashmina, <laughs> and he's trying to talk, and I hate, but I hate this so much. I hate it like. I really do. And this is very much a long-term monogamy thing, I think, of like when your boyfriend speaks for you in like official situations when there's another man present. And I'm like, yeah, how like fuck you? Like how dare you? But the way she just sort of like glares at him and goes, you are mortifying me. You are mortifying me. <laughs> so realistic. I think it's the most realistic argument of, in all of Sex and City that yeah. in terms of a love relationship a romantic relationship yeah yeah i i how do you feel about those scenes where he moves in i'll tell you who else is the unsung hero is <laughs> mrs cohen <laughs> oh my god i think it's so believable that like carrie being her most like cutesy and barbara streisandy screwball quirky female lead that like she would try and befriend some crotchety old woman in her building who just doesn't want to hear any of her bullshit it's so believable and to go back to our point about like how um carrie is like you know she everything we hate about ourselves is reflected in carrie you and i have had conversations about like <laughs> Oh no, don't. I know what you're going to say. You're going to expose no. us for the fucking monsters we really are. No, it's more just like you and I have definitely had conversations where we're like, we've tried, we've tried to do the thing. We've seen the Age UK adverts on our 
social media and we try to be the charming young lady who helps out the elderly neighbor and you and I have both had this happen to us where we're like the, the elderly neighbor just rejects us outright <laughs> The, the neighbor can sense that we're trying to have a moment with them and they're like, leave me alone. They're sick of it. And also like, we're just all trying to be Kate Winslet in the holiday. We're all, oh my God. Like my equivalent of that is when I was out with my dog one day and I, I met this man who was struggling with his bags and I, you know, I, I helped him bring his shopping into his house and, you know, he was commenting on the dog and we got to chat a bit more and he started telling me about like, um, you know, how he used to work in TV and he um, did the adaptation for Under Milkwood and he knew Dylan Thomas personally. And it was that proper, that vision of the fascinating old Londoner that you think you're going to meet when you move to yeah. London. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, I, like Tony, if you'd ever like to, you know, go for a cup of tea sometime or something, I'd love to hear more about Mr. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was just like, no and then he like literally slammed the door in my face he looked terrified i think he was like oh god this old like this irish girl in the fucking dog hair coat is gonna steal my tiles or something (laughs) mrs cohen is so that character that's a crazy (gasps) outfit i love her so much (laughs) so good so good um but we've gone straight to like the aiden period of this series and we will come back to it but there's a a good amount of time that's like pre-Aiden of her just doing her thing and then we suddenly get this thing of like she gets the invite for Scout the opening of Scout Caroline talk about the invite I know you're sweating too (laughs) the invite is so funny to me the invite is shit everyone needs to rewatch the episode the bar is beautiful the and the bar looks like somewhere I would love to hang out. So props to Aiden and Steve for that. But the <laughs> but the 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 ad for Scout is like a drawing of a dog, and like then <laughs> then like the word Scout in Impact Font. And I showed it to to Gavin, his graphic designer, and he said it looks like a children's charity that's run by three people. <laughs> and then, that's what the logo and then looks Caroline like. ended up on a fucking Reddit thread about it. <laughs> And did you see that someone commented saying, this looks like Peppa Pig? (laughs) It does! It does look like Peppa Pig! It's that calibre of drawing. But like it's supposed to be sort of cool and hip and edgy. The prop prop person was not showing up for work that day. Because you're right, it is weird when you see this. It is the the shittest invite you've ever seen. And then Samantha, when they bring the invite out (laughs) at, at brunch, Samantha says... Why didn't I get an invite to this hip and happening party? And it's just like Samantha wouldn't want to go. Look at that invite. Is it As if. <laughs> As if. And like, there's this thing where suddenly it's like it's such a a Carrie Clangerism, where she's like, "I miss him. I have missed him for months." It's like, babe, you're in a Dolce and Gabbana fashion show two episodes ago. Get, like shifting a hot photographer you haven't missed him for any length of time but why why does why do you think they get back together i obviously understand plot wise why they get back together but looking at the psychology of those characters why why does she want to get back together with them do you think i do think that there is this thing of like when you have behaved poorly with a person that you want to 
and, and, and you're terrified that your worst self is the vision that lives in their head. Right? Yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. And so you almost want to perform corrective surgery on their brain where you want to show them that, that you're a good person and that you're rounded and that you've learned from your mistakes. And it's really smart. It's really smart that they have Aiden say that. Do you remember when she, when she says, when she's kind of begging him yeah. to, to go out with her again, he's like, I can't remember the line, but it's beautifully put. He basically says that, like, is this about repentance because I've forgiven you? Like, don't do this yeah. to try and prove something to me. Yeah. And I do think, I, I think it's it's a real accomplished piece of writing that the, that Aiden point two is a different character. Do you know what I mean? Like He is, isn't he? Yeah. But like, he's, he's obviously, he's the same guy that we, the same like, you know, cute, soft, folksy guy with the furniture shop that, that everyone fell in love with in the, in the season three. But he's got sharper edges in season four that make him a more competitive, compelling person and not just like a stencil you know yeah um like like his him like feeding her cake in the in the sort of alley behind scout at the launch party is the first time i've ever really found him hot it's really horny i find that really hot he is you're right like i do there are a few moments in this series where i i do really fancy aiden in a way that that i don't at all in series one. And I do think as well, it's like, as you said, he's hardened. And mm-hmm. so, again, it's why the series is so good. It's a proper, like, psychological drama. What you're swimming through in that Aiden story is, like, deep, deep resentment and pain and trauma. Yeah. And and also, like, tinged with misogyny, I think. Yeah, so it's like an Adam and Eve thing. He, you know, he thinks <laughs> Carrie, Carrie's kind of evil. I think, and that's like, yeah. I think you really do. She really senses that, and that she finds that so, she finds that so um, difficult. And that that final, you know, when they finally break up, and he's like, he basically says, "I'm, I only want to marry you to know that you're not going to sleep with that guy." What's interesting is, is that like. When there is that friction in the first few episodes that Aiden comes back, and I think it is such good writing where it's like, he is like, he is like hot and sexy and like, you know, you can totally see why she's fallen totally in love with him all over again, you know, for new ways. But he's also such a cunt to her. He's awful to her. He is. Like, he really, he really shames her. He really, yeah. really puts her through hell. And it's like, and I hate this term because I think it has been overused to the point of it not meaning anything anymore. But he, he fucking, he really gaslights her. He really makes her feel crazy all the time. But she, but like because this is the sort of pattern that she's used to and thrives on, she will like jump to it every time. It's like a beat she's totally comfortable with. Like that whole thing when she goes to the bar and he and she says that he's hanging out with the guys and it's that hot bartender and her name is like Shayna <laughs> but yeah so there's a girl behind the bar and they're having this really flirty banter and they're playing jacks and it's this thing of like that that girl is being the girl that Carrie has been that's like, it yeah so many times and she has like has to be like confronted with the horror show of her own like this is who you hurt when you think you're being cute you know yeah, and I think a lot of women in their thirties have that. Yeah, yeah, I certainly you, have. I certainly have. have. You? Yeah, like 
Yeah. When when you when you see a twenty something woman desperate for the attention of your boyfriend within the legal parameters of it not being cheating. Yeah. When you see that as a 30-something woman, it does really make you reevaluate a lot of your behaviour in your 20s, I think. I remember being 24, 25, 26 and like the the flirty ways I used to act with guys that I worked with and it was all sort of within the game of, oh, we're all just working together and, and basically work is a playground because there was so much drink around and there was so much sort of like partying in general after work. And like, I sort of have to tell myself whenever I those feelings bubble up, to just not touch that door. And yeah. if I do open that door, that it would just open up into a world of pain. I was going to ask you about um, the very fake friendship of Big and Carrie. Of, yes, I think Aiden behaves badly. If you choose to have a relationship and tr- and trust someone who's betrayed you, the rule has to be that it's a new relationship. Otherwise, you like you can't put that other person through hell. I think like you have to have the big conversation. You have to say everything you need to say. And then it has to mm. start from ground zero. Otherwise, it's so unfair. That being said, and I do think that the way that Aiden shames her, I do think that it's unnecessary. And I do think that it is tinged with misogyny. That being said... Why is she so obsessed with Big Bing in her life? Do you think she's just still... I completely agree like this I, I watch mine. it and when she like it, it, you know he rings the house and then she goes out with him and then she like invites him to Aiden's cottage I just I do think like this is mad behavior this is so insensitive did you feel the yeah. same I feel exactly the same like the idea that you would get back together with someone with the with the I mean it's so obvious I don't even to say it but like with the thing that the premedicated thing of like the reason you broke up is because you had an affair with your ex, but you frequently going for lunch with your ex is fine. Like, in what world? <laughs> you know? I found it like, nuts re-watching it. Nuts. That, he, that he's, he is persuaded every time. I think he's just obsessed with her, isn't he? Who, Aiden? Yeah, like, why does he put up with it? Why does he put up with it when he has so many better options? I think it's because he and sort of the homoeroticism we discussed in season three <laughs> really pays off in season four in yeah. that he wants to win. And this whole thing about like, oh, you know, he's Batman and I'm the Green Lantern and, and Pete's Cato and all this stuff. And it's like, it's so stupid. But it also is like, you, Aiden Shaw, owner of a bar and a profitable furniture business, for some reason a millionaire. <laughs> you have cast this man who you have met twice as Batman in your head. <laughs> like, I don't like I don't pretend to know everything about straight men, but I do know they put Batman on a pretty high pedestal. <laughs> It's like yeah. you think you think you're the Green Lantern in your own fantasy and he's Batman. <laughs> Like, it's like, it's almost like a competition in being cool with it, I think. Yeah. It's so weird. And then it sort of, it's it all comes to a head in this sort of, um, in the mud wrestle in fucking this horrible country house. I find that country house very horny. Do you? I think. Yeah. Well, mm. Yeah, I do. I get, I get frustrated with 
with Carrie being so bratty about it because there was nothing that I would find hotter than my boyfriend having some fucking horrible shack that he takes me to for a weekend. I do agree. <laughs> in that I would lo- I would love it. And like I actually would. But the fact that like it's in the country, yeah, it's like it's a mile from the lake. <laughs> Why do you know? Which is like if people have these things and you want to go, you want it to be pretty near the lake. <laughs> Why do you know that, Caroline? <laughs> Did you go on Google Maps? How do you know? <laughs> no, he says it when she gets out of the car. When she gets out okay. of the car. In Suffering. Um, yeah, she gets out of the car and he says, oh, there's a lake nearby. And she goes, really? And she looks around and he goes, yeah, a mile that way. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I think we like the idea that we, uh, uh, very similar to the journey Carrie goes on within this very series, we all love the idea that we would love to be a woodsy sort of cottage core fantasy with our like a hot workman boyfriend. <laughs> but actually, it's a mile from the lake. It's near fuck all. It doesn't even seem that nice. <laughs> like there's no air conditioning. Like this is New York in the height of summer and there's no air conditioning. That is a big fucking deal. <laughs> like, yes, like I think. I've I've had an eight percent beer now, so I'm getting pretty passionate. <laughs> Go on, but like I can't. Here's the thing: I have seen so many things where the woman comes round, right, and she's like, you know, actually, I love nature, and this is idyllic, and this is beautiful, or whatever it is that she needs to like in order to get through to the man, and I kind of love that Carrie doesn't have to love the country. Do you know what I mean? That we don't have this moment where she's like, I think the really easy thing to do would be like, oh, and then suddenly like night falls and there's, and there's, um, you know, stars everywhere and they go out into the back and he sort of wraps his arms around her and she sees and stops and has a Miranda moment where she sort of sees the the beauty of nature and it's all overwhelming. Carrie and the natural world, yeah. Carrie and the natural world. I love how it just sticks with like, I hate it here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with that. You don't have to change and I like that. There you go. (laughs) I agree with that and I also, I do think that that, you know, we're obviously saying like, oh, why does Aiden put up with Big Big in her life? Like, it's such a dumb question because obviously the reason why is that... That's good TV. It makes great TV, exactly. And I do think, I had a realisation watching those um, episodes this time round that I'm very excited to pitch to you now. Oh, I can feel this is a big one. (laughs) So, you know those episodes of the very fake friendship of uh, Big and Carrie where she's like, he's in my life and he needs to be in my life and we have this bond. And you see them going to jazz together. And when she's back with Aiden, you you see them like going to a classic New York steakhouse and he's talking about this Hollywood actress who he's gone gaga for. I think that Chris North as an actor, is the best in this series because yes. he gets to be comedic and he's a fucking talented comedic actor. And I think Big is the most interesting as a character. He's vulnerable. He's neurotic about women. He's jealous about Carrie and the jazz guy. He's quippy. He's 
honest with her. He's open with her. He's a completely different man to the man he was with her when he was trying, when she was mm. trying to make him commit, which is a man who just repeats what she said very slowly <laughs> back to her and listens to a lot of Sinatra and has a cigar and is uh, has a chauffeur. Got a great bottle of wine. Got a great bottle of wine in his granite kitchen. <laughs> It's just so different. It's literally like totally different characters. And I had a thing in my head of like, maybe there's another version of Sex in the City that exists in a different dimension that takes on a When Harry Met Sally quality where Big and Carrie in episode, in series one, maybe they have one date or maybe they have one one night stand. They get on so well. They make each other laugh. They find out about the opposite sex through each other. And they make a decision where they say, let's just try and be best mates. And then what you would have seen over six series is her rolling her eyes in the same way Sally Albright does with Harry Burns, Mm -hmm. of her rolling her eyes at him with how he's being with women and giving her advice and him cutting through the bullshit and giving the male perspective on dating and then that very, been very so much better so much better and then very incrementally you had invested so hard in these two people that are quite similar in a way as you've said before like they think they can talk themselves out of any situation they want an unorthodox they want an untraditional life they want a lot from life they're highly sexed they like the finer things in life they're strangely like brotherly sisterly with each other and then they have this moment in series six and they say and then and then big runs through manhattan and finds her and says you know i love that you get cold when it's Oh my god! You have blown my nipples <laughs> off with that. I, I literally like it. I have the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. You're a genius. This is why you are a best-selling <laughs> author you. two times over, and I'm a pleb. This is it. No, you are right. You are dead right. And I think Chris Noth would be a happier man. <laughs> Me too. And I just think it would have been such a great opportunity for them. They're also two people, kind of like Harry and Sally, who like they don't they don't understand the opposite sex. And it would have been this yeah. great way of them hacking. If we had this thing of like, yes, of. Even I, I would actually wager to say if we kept season one as it is, right, of yeah. like them having this um, really chaotic relationship that ends the way it does, her not going to St. Bart's. Then season two, he comes back as her friend. And then we maintain this thing, this really rich, dynamic friendship with a slight throbbing underbelly of yes. we used to have sex. Yes. And then they come back in season six. And he runs through and says, I love it when you get cold when yeah. it's blah, blah, blah. Like, you're dead right. That would have been the better show. Totally. I think it would have been. And I think, and I as well, it, it, it completely answers all my frustrations and your frustrations about this show. And this is, I think this is one of my most fascinating things when I look at art or cultural figures in a really um, detailed way, which I am want to do, um, is people that don't know what they have. And, and Sex and the City didn't know that they had a great comedic actor. 
And I find that really sad. I like, know. obviously, Chris Nath does not need my pity. He has been, he's basically <laughs> never been off the TV in 30 years. Like, he went straight from, straight from Sex and City into The Good Wife and had long, profitable seasons on that. Before that, he was on Law and Order. You know, he does not need sympathy from Caroline O'Donoghue, <laughs> minor Irish novelist. <laughs> However, I'm going to give it to him. Because... I, when I, I, just know, look- I know he'd appreciate it because I don't think he had a good time on that show. No, he don't, and if anyone's listening to those Origins podcasts, I know we plug them a lot, but they really should so listen good. to them. Yeah. Because everybody had a great time on that show except for Chris Knopf because Chris Knopf, all of his scenes were these very dour, sort of aloof scenes with Sarah Jessica Parker, who seems like a lovely woman, but you can't, you know, make a whole meal out of... You can't make a, a six-year career out of scenes with one person you know yeah and like and those moments where he's allowed to play and be funny he goes for it he really does like when first of all this is this is just gonna be i'm just gonna track chris knott's trajectory of this whole thing (laughs) of the great chris knott moments of season four of um when they're having their fake friendship and they go to the jazz club aren't these cats amazing (laughs) Oh, he's so cringe. But he leans into it so hard. And, like, it makes me love Big. Like, weirdly, I fancy Big this season. Him being a friend to Carrie, I'm like, you're fuckable. Yeah, because you're being yourself and you're relaxed. You're being a human being. Yes. Um, So... It's yeah. So that episode with the... the, the, So they're at this club together. And while they're sort of enjoying it. She gets a note passed to her from Ray, the jazz guy saying, is he your boyfriend? And then she sort of says, no, he's just my friend. And then Ray tries to sort of flirt with her while Big is there. And Big is so funny throughout the whole thing. He's like, (laughs) at one point he's trapped in the cab with the two of them and they're flirting. And he just looks out the window and he just sinks into his chins and he just goes, cabs are bullshit. bullshit. (laughs) And then he gets out at her. At her. Gabs are gabs are bullshit. He sinks into those chins. He just like gabs are bullshit. It's so good. And then I don't know why that's tickled me so much. It's so petulant. He does petulance so well. So, so well. They get out and um, <laughs> he he gets out where she gets out. And she's like, what are you doing now? He's going to think that we're going up together. And she's like, for fuck's sake, you're so unmanageable. Which is again, which is yet another affirmation of your When Harry Met Sally idea of like, they're so much funnier and sparkier together when they're having this friendship, this sort of yeah, this frustrated yeah, I thing. I love their scenes together as friends. Even though it's fake friendship, we Even still appreciate it. In this series, like when they're when they're both like unavailable, they are just funnier. They're so sparky. They're so much sparkier than they are when they're going out. And then, so she says to him, like, you know, oh, he's gonna think we got off together. Like, oh my god, what are you doing? You're being so inappropriate. And he says, "Ooh, Carrie likes a jazz man. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie likes a jazz man." 
<laughs> and it's, I find it so funny. And it goes all the way through. And then we have the thing where he starts going out with the movie star, Willow Summers. So they go for this dinner at the steak restaurant and they talk about Willow Summers, who his, who's his movie star girlfriend, who he's totally obsessed with. And uh, he's telling her all about them meeting at like an MTV Awards thing, which I have no idea why Big is there as like a <laughs> random finance guy, but okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, he, you know, she's sm- he's smoking. Willow apparently comes up to him and says, asks for a light and says, I have two vices, smoking and green-eyed men. <laughs> and Big is so delighted with himself. And Carrie just goes, oh, she's a smoothie. <laughs> it's, it's so, so good. And, and then they have this whole thing where he starts telling her about... Um, about them having sex and he's like take her upstairs dress comes off red <laughs> red panties. panties oh my god i love when we both quote it it's so geeky if you're struggling to lose weight you've probably heard about weight loss medications like wigovi or zepbound and you might be wondering if they're right for you meet plush care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com That storyline of her trying to be friends with him, and it kind of exposes the very fake friendship of Carrie and Big, that when he's actually talking about having feelings for another woman, she finds it too difficult. Mm. I think there's something so brilliant about, and I've had this when I've tried to be friends with an ex who really hurt me, hearing about them being hurt, hearing like how, hearing them going through the same thing they put me through. It's just so complicated It's so disempowering. It's so upsetting. It's so strange. It doesn't matter how like platonic you are and how happy you are. It is really weird. And it is really, you know, those are deep, deep wounds to your ego when someone rejects you like that. And it's, I think it's like so believable that Carrie, I think when he's talking about the red panties, she's like, I can't hear anymore. (laughs) So believable. It's so on point, so well observed. And like, it really feels like lines written by women who, who have done this. Um, But then we go right to, sorry, we're just on a kind of a a Chris Noth tour of this season right now. We're on the Chris Noth bus tour of season four. It's my favourite bus tour. This is, he's just like, absolutely doesn't get any better than this series. The great, the great conflict of Sentimental (laughs) in the City. Go on. The great thematic conflict of this podcast (laughs) mini-series is that we hate big and we love Chris Noth. 
That's exactly it. That is the great conflict. Because then we go um, to him getting dumped by Willow Summers. And he just completely spins out about it. And it's the Billy so Joel, funny. the Billy, him listening to uh, New, New York, York State, State of Mind, of Mind as, as that being their song. And you really getting this insight into what a kind of fantasist he is. I think there's probably like no room for fantasy in the Carrie Big relationship from his side. Because obviously we're in Carrie's head, but also because she is such a fantasist about him. But seeing that they're kind of cut of the same cloth, that he can very intensely fall for someone and become addicted to them. Mm-hmm. It being this like very cheesy Billy Joel song that he's listening to on repeat in the rain, in his car, with all the windows up, smoking. It's just like such a brilliant character detail, I think. So good. And and when he when he drives down to Aiden's house and just like sits outside in his chauffeured car. And she then to get into the car. And then Aiden delivers the line that I think is maybe the most truthful line of him and Carrie's relationship, where he's he's asking why Big won't come in, and he says maybe he doesn't want to come and meet your dad. He well, you said it. It's a Freudian relationship. It's a okay. Totally here's another Freud thing. Yeah. Here's another thing that I think about Carrie and Aiden getting back together. I'm not proud of this. I did, and have done many times before, freeze on the email that Aiden... Oh, my God. <laughs> ...that Carrie we composes. Are the same. That Carrie composes to Aiden when she's yeah. trying to get him back and then she deletes it. And it's a very sweet email. Carrie is like... When you really distill what she misses about Aiden that she says to her friends and she says in that email, it's basically like, I like being hugged by a big man. <laughs> It is that, Caroline. She's obsessed with the nook. And like, yeah, she's obsessed with being small. She loves being small. I was, uh, yeah, I was re-listening to our, um, editing our season three episode and we really go in on on small ladies. (laughs) And and for all of the small dinky ladies listening, we love you. We're friends with all of you. But we'll we'll never stop feeling slightly resentful of how easily you get to dissolve into being a tiny little kitten with men it does not come easily to us and we resent you for it we're jealous and we're sorry we're sorry we are sorry (laughs) not it's not it's not you it's us it's our baggage we're bringing it to the situation but don't you notice that when she's talking about him she's like oh i just miss him holding me and then in that to the nook and then in that email she's like every night i think about you hugging me i just yeah (sighs) buy a bear buy a bear (laughs) your advice is buy a bear buy a bear (laughs) buy a bear (laughs) this has gone off build a bear this has gone this will mark just i remember last week i spoke about um uh season three was the season they got overconfident and thought they could deal with any subject without any um inference from anybody else and that's this episode for us (laughs) We're getting too confident and we think people will listen to anything and they won't. So we better get back on track. Let's talk about Richard and Samantha. I want to talk about both of Samantha's love interests of this season, which is Maria and Richard. Oh God, I forgot Maria was in this series. 
Weirdly, we sort of skipped to the middle of the series without talking about the early episodes. And there are some great stuff in there, like the fashion show, like her birthday party. And I do think we're kind of doing it a bit topsy-turvy. We're sort of working our way backwards a little bit, but that's fine. Um, but I love Maria. I love Maria. And, and considering Samantha is in two relationships in this series, first with Maria, then a long spate of being single, and then with Richard... And we see her trying monogamy with two very different people. It seems right. really clear cut to me that Maria brings out the better qualities in her, you know? Yeah. And do you know what I find? So I love those scenes, those like initial flirty, tender, loving scenes with her and Maria, because it's the first time that you see Samantha engaging in a flirtation where she's being exactly the same as she is with the girls. And it is like when you see her being sweet with Maria when they're painting together or, you know, having a laugh together, it does make you realise just like how much of a persona she adopts when she's with straight Mm. men. It's a totally different character. It, it, it It is so interesting. And we did touch on it last season of like, when she talk, it's the one of the Samantha Nuggets that we love so much. The the rarely dispersed Samantha Nuggets of um her growing up reading her father's Playboys and yeah. her sort of like modeling herself on a sort of on a a sex figure from a different generation, right? Like that's why she's so, you know, Jane Mansfield to the power of Mae West in so many scenes, and um that is a character that she has been playing for so long. Like like many of us do, many of us have characters that we put on for for either professional or social situations. We put them on for so long they become part of who we are, and there is no longer any differentiation. And so when she stops being that persona when she's with Maria, it's really as a viewer, and I'm sure as a character, if the character were real, must feel very refreshing to not have to do. But ultimately, that that part of you doesn't stop existing do you know what I mean yeah. which is why I think Smith who's ultimately kind of in the run of the show the great love of her life is sort of the perfect amalgamation of both Richard Wright and Maria of being this sort of very soft artist but also being like a straight man oh my god I really didn't know where the you way were going you just with looked that at me, you were like <laughs> okay this is getting a little much no you're totally right Genius girl, galaxy brain. You're totally right that that Smith is quite an earnest, soft artist, but he's also very male and straight and red-blooded. Yeah. And yeah, she's just so... When she makes the art with Maria, like when they're... When Maria's like watching her hands and it gets like really heated, it's really hot. Yeah. And like, it's all, I just, I love it all. It's only like three episodes, but like many of the relationships that are only like two or three episodes, like Piss Politician in the last series. Yeah. It feels really weighty, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the only thing that I find sad about the Maria storyline is that it leaves zero legacy in the show. Yes. Yeah. It's quite strange, isn't it? Very strange, particularly when, like, Richard is a similar length of time and yet he's constantly referred to in the show and he comes back and it's something that she seems to grapple with 
and Maria's never mentioned ever again. Even at the end of the series where she's having this threesome with that 21-year-old, which we'll mm. get to, and I'm not happy about. <laughs> I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy about it at all. Um, it doesn't even come up, the fact that, you know, a few months previously she was in a relationship with the woman and now she's having a threesome with her boyfriend and a woman. Like, surely... Like, it's weird how the show seems to forget that happened. And I and I wonder why. Yeah, and I don't... I don't like being a sourpuss. <laughs> no, neither, none, neither of us Sex do, in no. the city. But I do think, like, it is a real lost opportunity because really what is that saying to young women? What it's saying mm. is if you're highly sexed enough, you will pretend to be into girls for a bit. But really, it's not that serious and it's a fad. And it's just because you were like bored of dick or wanting attention. And really, you'll go back to the home base, which is Richard Wright, the most heterosexual man alive. It is disappointing, I think. It makes it it faddy. Particularly when the work they do in those episodes feels so considered and lovely. And yeah. um, and, it, and it, it, when you're in those episodes, it never feels like, and they play with this notion a lot. Um, it never feels like, oh, Samantha's just bored of dick. It feels like she's met this woman, she's had an intense connection and she's decided to have a relationship with her, which is a thing I think can happen to anybody regardless of how sexed they are, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's funny because the funny thing about it is that the girls aren't really shocked at the lesbianism, they're shocked at the relationship. Monogamy. It, the monogamy yeah. of it all. Yeah. And then... To sort of, for the show, for the episodes where it's happening, to feel really invested and really real and really textural, and then for them to abandon it so quickly and to never refer to it again, it almost feels like an internalized homophobia that's happening. And that happens so much when women have relationships with other women, even though otherwise they seem to be straight, which is that it it was a phase. It was a thing you were going through. And I do think that happens a lot with with female relationships and it is very sad and like I do think I would be very interested to hear what the writers think of that now actually yeah I agree and then uh, Richard Wright oh he's awful he's so awful isn't he do you find anything attractive about him weirdly I remember finding him so hot when I was a teenager really yeah because he was a little bit scary and I found that very fit He is a bit scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you respond to in Richard Wright is what I respond to in the Russian. Yes. Darkness. Something of the night. (laughs) (laughs) Something of the night. Like, oh, you're a bit of a creep, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit of a creep. I was big into that as a teenager. But now, yeah, it's weird. In the same way that as we covered extensively in the last episode that... The McDougals, the scenes with the McDougal family feel like, feel like very a play, like you're in a theatrical production. I feel like Richard and Samantha are very a soap. Yes. This is, when you said this to me, I was like, oh, oh. Like even the way it's shot, the way the music changes when they're together, it feels like coronation street like it's 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 so broad and it's so um primary colors and it's so overblown and it's so like 
even look, I love Sade as much as the next woman, but the fact that her like big realization moment that she maybe needs to give into love is her like on a rooftop pool with a hotel magnate while a Sade song plays. It just, it feels very cliche to me, that whole storyline. I don't, I don't think it's very well done. And there's something that you said back in episode one that I think Brett Goldstein said to you, which was that all the men in Sex and the City, all the major men are there to teach the women something. Yeah. And to that end, I'm like, what does Richard Wright teach Samantha? What does he teach her? Like, there's no, there's no depth really there. You know, it's, I just find him like to be a horrible predator. And the way he's like introduced into it as well is awful. Like, like, it's actually a really great episode. It's a really great arc of like him not hiring her because um, she has slept with his architect. Yeah. And and it becomes this sort of like very slut shamey, very, very real interaction of like, you know, her her being completely it's one of these things about sex and I really hate it when Samantha's decisions come back to haunt her I find it like because <laughs> it really because in in a way she's like the female James Bond in that like she is able to live in this hyper reality yes. of like of like no repercussions and like you know just being able high to have octane sex. yeah totally like there yeah. are many Scenes where it feels like she's on a different, not just a different show, but a different like plane of reality. Dimension. That's so true. That's so, so true. And I hate the idea of her being like knocked off and being like, oh, you know, all those guys you had sex with? Well, here's how you're professionally paying for it. And it, I like, and then, you know, he, she sort of is horrible to her in this meeting and she sort of runs into the lift crying and she manages to close the door just before he sees her cry. And then he, she gets a call from him later in the episode, and he said, well, "It said he admired her balls, you know." And this, which is this really even that thing. even that sentence, admired her balls, like so EastEnders, so EastEnders. It's so I find that whole storyline, like as you said, I can't work out what it is that she learns from him. Maybe that, like, maybe that she doesn't. Maybe what she learns is that she doesn't need someone as outsized as her to take her on, maybe. Maybe. Because I suppose Smith is a bit more low-key. But I just find that whole relationship and the way it's executed and, as you said, even, like, the tone of it and the dialogue of it, I just... It feels... feels lazy to me. It feels lazy. And I think if you zoom out from it and if you look at the whole trajectory from the minute they meet and him him being awful to her and slut-shaming her and then her saying to him, you know, if I was a guy, you would have shaken my hand and because I'm a woman, you're saying this and basically go fuck yourself. And then she goes into the lift and he follows her and she closes the door and it cries. And she cries. Um, if you zoom out from that and then you see him pursuing her, him making her her like love bombing her really is what we'd know it as with mm. gifts and with declarations of love and trying to get her to trust him so badly her him kind of pushing this monogamy thing all this it it does feel like he's just a sadist who's like yeah. this woman who thinks she's so this well I'm yeah. going to sort of I'm going to possess her and then I'm going to destroy her yeah it feels like sadism he feels like satan <laughs> yeah it's dark it's like she's she's a, a 
game to be conquered. I want to soften her and get her to fall in love with me and then I win and I move on. Yeah, yeah. That's and it. I th- and that would be more interesting if it was better written, I think. I think yeah. all the all the tools are there to make a really interesting arc for that, but if they had tried a little harder. But unfortunately, as with Chris Noth, I don't think they give Kim Cattrall the best things to work with. One episode of Sex and City that I previously loved, and I think it was one of my favourite episodes growing up, but I now look at and I feel very affronted and slightly dangerous about in a way that I think doesn't get touched on by critiques that much and that I do feel like I have remit to talk about as like, you know, a white lady is the Vogue episode. It's so funny that I remember you and I talking about that episode and you rewatching it and being like, just to warn you, this episode is horrible and made me feel horrible. I didn't I didn't feel that as strongly as you. I think maybe I'm just really Yeah, I think maybe I'm just hardened to it in some way. I don't know. Yeah. Tell me why it affected you so much rewatching it. Because I remember you having a very strong reaction saying to me it made me it made me feel very sad. Yeah, and like people who listen to this ep- this this podcast will know that like I am willing to write so many permission slips and I I generally like don't like to criticize the show that much because it's a different time or whatever. But within the Vogue episode, there are two major dynamics at play, which is um Carrie going to work for Vogue for her ridiculous $4.50 <laughs> a word to write about handbags for five and men. Hundred words. Every journalist I know is so upset by that episode. No, so upset over the two fact that she's to write a piece on handbags. She's going so mental about this piece that she has yeah. to have like a really, really high up editor like take her on as a mentee when she's at this age thirty five. Thirty five, <laughs> and help her like rework the whole thing and then the the like denouement of that episode is it's a 500 word piece the way she's going on is like it's a sort of vanity fair long read (laughs) yeah it's like one of those like 5,000 word pieces that takes years to research and do it's about handbags um but and like like I don't want to like go on about too much because it is still a really fun episode and I it do is, I love that some episode. of the most iconic moments of like Cookie's drunk I'm drunk at Vogue, um but so it has this thing of like this this um, editor this older guy he takes her on as as his, uh, as a mentee and then simultaneously to that Samantha and Richard decide they're going to have a threesome with a 21-year-old hostess that it's never cleared up, but I think works in one of Richard's hotels. Oh my God, I didn't realise that was the same episode. I wonder if that was coincidental or whether that was really, really smart of the writers looking at the nature of consent and power and youth. Well, here's the thing. I would like to say that, but I don't... I think it is a coincidence because nobody comments on this, this thing, which is that, like... In both instances, it's people like corrupting their position of power. Yeah, with 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 their employees, right? And with with Carrie's situation, it's like she has this like wonderful connection with this lovely older man who's been in the business forever, and they go for a meals and they talk about his wife, and she really 
feels like and it, and it's one of those rare things as well where we get a biographical detail about Carrie where you know her father left the family when she was very young and all this and Caroline sorry this is a side note Caroline and I the spiritual thing that bonds us is that we are people who when we're obsessed with something we will pause and take a picture and we do this a lot in Sex in the City I do it every time Carrie Bradshaw reads a book it's normally Martin Amos which I find very satisfying I remember you I remember you pausing on the picture of Carrie and her dad and you noting that it looked it looked like a picture from the 1920s. <laughs> it does. It does look like a picture from the 1920s. It's like, <laughs> girl, you were like four in the 70s, right? Like, <laughs> surely this picture should be in color. I think you texted me a, 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 a freeze frame of it saying, Carrie and her father circa the Great Depression. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, it's just a side note. Carry on. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I think I was taking myself too seriously. Um, <laughs> no, but um, yeah, so she has this like great connection with this older guy and then he sort of, she he takes her into the Vogue closet and then she turns around and he's in his underwear and she's like, oh God, like put that away. This is really inappropriate. I don't like this. And then she changes the editor is to work with Enid, who is played by Candace Bergen. Um, and then, you know, with, with, with Carrie, it's like, okay, she's a 35 year old woman. She can handle this situation, but it still, it still sucks that that happened, right? Like if that happened to you, you would be really fucking depressed. Like <laughs> the thing is, is that it's happened to me so much that I think that yeah. I've had so many of those relationships over the years with older men being kind of mentors or... Yeah. And it always ends up like that. I just, maybe it's sad that I just, I, I actually find it quite reassuring that episode that was just, it's an, it's an inevitability that doesn't really surprise me. And let men be men. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> that. But as in, I don't, I think it's probably indicative of, it's just, it's that whole relationship is so interesting to me, the way it unfolds. And it's just so familiar. And it's been familiar yeah. to me since I was very young. It's happened to me a lot, a lot. No, it's, it's happened to, to me a lot as well. And yeah. I think, and it was it was part of what I, sort of what inspired my first book as well, was, was the idea of these relationships that sort of start in this sort of mentor-mentee way and then get very toxic very quickly. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if it was because when you said that, I was like, it does feel like I did wonder how much of promising young women, how much like because you've really focused on those kind of dynamics. And like in your first novel, you really unpacked them and really examined every component of them, whether that might be why this like hit so much harder, like the significance of how depressing it is. Yeah, I th- I think you're you're totally right, and because it's played alongside this threesome thing with, with this random twenty one year old, um, who I think is supposed to be Richard's one of his employees, but again, it's not clarified. Um, I think it's because I spend so long, first of all, for the writing of that novel, examining those dynamics mm. inter- internally. And then, so that novel came out in twenty eighteen, and since then, and anyone who's who's written a book will know this. When you write something, you think that you have 
dealt with the idea and the notion and the theory of what you've written about. But actually, you putting it out into the world makes you vulnerable to other people saying, this happened to me, this happened to me. These are the ways in which this has changed me forever. Here are the ways in which I saw myself in your character. And you realize from your inbox filling up, you know, maybe it's two, two emails a month, maybe it's 10, of like, oh, this is a... This is an epidemic. This is a shared things. problem. Yeah. This is a shared problem. And I yeah. think to, to see two intertwined stories happening in this show that I love, and then for the show itself to not reckon with the dynamics at play really unmoored me in a way. Yeah. yeah. That, that obviously it's because I've been like knee deep in the subject matter for a few years now. And that's and you're dead right. That's why it like spoke to me so much, I suppose, and, and upset me so much. Um, but yeah, I mean, I say upset. I wasn't, you know, <laughs> I was, I'm Caroline. <laughs> Caroline and I are obsessed with the idea of an alternative Sex in the City where Richard Richard Wright and Samantha Jones have a sex scandal. I just think as well of that that 21 year old who, like, in like Samantha's sort of like vision, she's like, oh, she's this sexy little idiot who just thinks she can do everything and fuck her but like I just I, I look at that girl who's been tossed on the floor by Richard and Samantha and like she's probably going to her house share in Brooklyn telling her how flatmates about this threesome that went yeah. badly and now she feels yeah. like shit you know yeah I agree I agree <laughs> I just feel really bad for her I do as well and she would have got all dressed up imagine how she would have gone out that night from her shitty house share and she would have yeah. been so excited it's so glam and they're both in their forties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A hotel magnate and his like glamorous PR girlfriend. They 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 they've come to you at work and they've approached you and like then you're just like tossed on the floor. <laughs> See, like if 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 Kim Cattrall had signed up for the imminent reboot, I think that would be an absolutely wonderful. <laughs> plot twist oh it's so good that suddenly this woman now in her 40s comes out of the woodwork and writes and writes a first person piece for the cut (laughs) oh my god that would be so good and samantha Samantha gets me too yeah it would be delectable it would be delicious and samantha (laughs) has to go and face her and samantha and the girls have to you know support her through it Oh my, I mean, I know we're having a laugh, but that would be so good. (laughs) We've done this episode so unchronologically, but I really wanted to talk to you about that opening episode, that first episode of this series, because I think it's brilliant. And something that you and I have talked about that I am fascinated by is the obsession that we have with beginning a female story with a woman's Mm. birthday. You did it for Promising Young Women. I did it for Ghosts. It obviously makes sense that the beginning of a year is an exciting place to find a character and it feels ripe with opportunity and promise. I do think there's something you know, political and gendered about the fact it's often women's stories that I think, particularly women in their 30s, there's this sense that every year matters. Yeah, yeah. 
it's really poignant to me that this first episode is hinged on her 35th birthday. I agree. And like, I, I turned 30 in 2020 and I was really glad that I had you around actually, because you were one of the few people who I, who is really open about reckoning with age in a way that I think it's become much more of a cool girl thing to pretend like you don't notice age and pretend like you don't see it going by. And like, I I remember a few months out from my 30th birthday, I was feeling like a little bit under the weather about it, like a little bit grim about it. Like, yeah. And and it was a combination of it happening in lockdown and, you know, just turning 30 generally. And I was like, I'm feeling really grim. I'm feeling really like there's no more adventures left. I feel like, you know, this sucks. And, and you said to me then, you're like, every year in your thirties feels like it counts more. Mm. And I was like, yeah, it mm. does. And now, you know, Gavin said to me the other day, I was, oh, it's your birthday in a few months. And I was like, what? It was just my birthday. And I'm someone mm. who like really likes their birthday. And for the first time ever, I was like, no, I like, I didn't get anything out of being 30. It's been this like global pandemic. I shouldn't have to be 31 now. And yeah. I've never felt that way in my life, but something happens in your thirties and it has a lot to do with the biological propaganda that is being pushed on you from the day you turn 30 and before it of that that thing of being 35 you know yeah and it's also beyond that because as I say I'm very aware that I don't want the uh, our listeners to feel like we're assuming that this is a pressure that weighs on the mind of every single woman because I know that for a lot of women this is not something that traumatizes Mm. them or is tyrannical for them but it's also it's not just about being fertile it's about being fuckable that's the other thing. Mm, like, that's mm. the thing that you, it's like, you're not even aware of it. But that, how can we not have absorbed messaging from such a young age of like, the younger you are, the more useful you are in society as someone who can produce citizens, but also mm. the more powerful you are because you're desired. Yeah. Of course that has an effect. And, you know, I have written a lot about aging and particularly turning 30 which I found really really fucking difficult like really really hard I have got a lot of people like find that completely unbearable and narcissistic and Mm. and neurotic and I accept that I totally accept all of those reactions and I believe them to be true I also believe that if we live until we're 90 when you get into your 30s you are entering the second act of your life and I defend the right to have a bit of a freak out about that. Mm. You're in part two of three. Part Sorry two three. to put too fine yeah. a point on it, but, you know, I, I defend any person's right at any age. You know, I had a dear Dolly the other day about a girl who's 24 freaking out about her youth slipping away. I defend anyone's right to freak out about getting older. If you like being alive, <laughs> yeah. yes, there are great benefits and you accrue lots of things and, it, you know, consider the alternative and blah, blah, blah. We like, I get that. It's a privilege to get older. It's also kind of terrifying and shit. And I think, yeah, I really, really enjoy that Carrie has a meltdown (laughs) in episode one about getting older. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I think it's a really well played meltdown because it's the thing where, you know, she doesn't want to celebrate it and she feels a little, not, not like terrible about it, but she's not feeling great about it. And then she has this disaster of a birthday where for various reasons, nobody can make it to Il Cantonori's. Which and I she... looked up the other day. Is it real? It's real and they're doing takeout. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for them. A cool $35 for a Caccio e Pepe. 
<laughs> oh my god. While we're on the subject of Bill County Norries, you know how like in the 90s and early noughties it was quite um chic for uh New York centric TV shows to do like crossover episodes with each other. Yeah. Like characters from Seinfeld would appear on Mad About You and on Friends and it was like this sort of network of of like this shared New York. When I watch this episode with her waiting in Il Cantonori's, it makes me feel like there's an Il Cantonori's sitcom somewhere <laughs> that these characters are bursting in on because That's the so two true. The two waiters who serve her are the most vividly constructed waiters. What's that woman comes over? The man has arrived with the birthday cake and he needs to be paid. <laughs> it kills me. That woman kills me. And the other person who kills me is the Irish yeah. waiter who, you know, in, in the extended universe of Sex and City, I believe to be Tommy the doorman's older brother <laughs> whose couch that Tommy is staying on when he's Charlotte's doorman. Um, and... He goes like, oh, he comes over and he's got this really like, it's a very hard accent to describe, but it's like a very husky type of, um, I would say sort of central Ireland, like around Dublin sort of accent. Uh, and he goes, uh, right, can I have any, do you have any wine wine for you? And she's like, no, no, I'll have a Shirley Temple. You know, when, you know, when people get here, they're going to be drinking lots of champagne. So, you know, he goes, great, right, excellent. Excellent. Fantastic. Yeah great excellent fantastic and there's this thing where he comes back several times and every time he says the same few words in the same order like great right excellent fantastic (laughs) and it's so unnerving and it feels so real it's so tommy's brother tommy's brother tommy's brother yeah i love how i'm just leaning into the cliche that all irish people are related or know each other (laughs) um but then, you know, it's this horrible disaster and she goes back to her flat and she has a shower and Charlotte comes in and and and, and they go to the diner and and she sort of talks about everyone standing her up and, and, and how she, she realises that, you know, it was circumstances outside of her control and it doesn't mean that her friends don't love her. It was just a, you know, a variety of circumstances. It's so real. It's so real, I think. It's so real. And she just sort of says, you know, I hate myself for saying this, but it felt really sad. And she just lets it hang there and they all are just like, yeah. And yeah. I really feel it for her, you know? Yeah. I think it's I think it's so well done. And I also I always really love when those like practical incidentals of life impinge on the story of something. And it's so perfect. Like I it, it's so undramatic and unexciting it's actually quite daring I think as a writer to to Mm. explore that like someone sitting and waiting and traffic meaning that all their friends don't get there or they go to the wrong Il Cantonori but it's so real and life is disappointing on a daily basis in such a in such a micro way and it does yeah it, it feels like everyone's had a birthday like that or they've had yeah a day that they were very excited about or a trip that they were very excited about go wrong for like a collage of practical reasons. And I really enjoy when I see that on screen. It makes me feel hugely reassured. Yeah. Yeah. And that thing of, um, 
I'll never, I'll never forget it actually. And I actually, looking back at series four, it makes me realize how much I was rewatching this series when I was going through my big sort of mid twenties breakup and how much the series went on to influence like key scenes from the novel that I then went on to write. Yeah. Um, because I had this thing where um, me and my boyfriend broke up. My birthday is May 7th. We broke up on May 4th. Oof. And we were still, yeah, it was bad. And we were still living together. Um, and so we we had sort of worked out this arrangement where I lived in the bedroom and he lived in the living room. And it was just, it was horrible. It was really, yeah. really horrible. Like, I'm so thankful that he's such a nice person because it could have been worse. But as it was, it was horrible. Um, and then, and it's actually, <laughs> this is a lot of autobiographical detail, but it really does feed back into the season a lot. But um, I had to move out. And in order for me to afford the deposit, I had to borrow £1,100 off my friend. And I had to basically ask her on the day of my birthday. I was like, I need to borrow money off of you. And that thing of it being your birthday and those things being markers of time. It like, it, it's, it's re- when things are going badly on your birthday, you feel it in your bones, in your spine, in mm. your cells. It just mm. feels like, when things are going well on your birthday, it feels like a coincidence. But when they're going badly, oh, Nelly. Like, it feels yeah. bad. yeah. 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 Very, not to simplify your trauma, <laughs> very series four of you. Very series four of me. Yes. Everyone, my book is very cheap on Kindle at the moment. Please. <laughs> <laughs> very series four. Um, and then, but then Charlotte has that lovely speech. It's so beautiful, that speech. And I love that she begins with saying, don't laugh at me, okay? Because <laughs> it's so how that speech would begin with friends. Yeah. Because it's so sort of mawkish. And she says, and actually it's so funny that like not more is made of that speech because it's kind of thrown away a bit because it's just the end scene mm. of a opening episode of a mid-series point. But she says, basically, the summary of the whole show. Oh, I've just realised something. What? Um, have I told you about, I listened to a, a talk that Richard Curtis gave about screenwriting mm. and something he said is really great and impactful as a trick to do when you're writing a film uh, is to, at the midway point or three quarters of the way through, have a character, obviously in a in a subtle and naturalistic way, remind the audience of what the entire premise of the film is. Yes. It anchors everyone into the middle of it and it reminds you of like the beating heart of the thing. So the example that he gave is in Notting Hill mm. at the three quarter way, you know, 75% of the way through, she says, I may be the most famous woman in the world, but I am also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. That is, that's basically like mm. when you think about the treatment of Notting Hill, that would have been the top line. And I kind of think mm. that's what Charlotte's doing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's delivering the top line of how you would sell that show to HBO. Maybe we're each other's soulmates and the men 
are people who come in and out of our lives to have fun with. Yeah. It's like she's You're totally right. That re- is she's yeah, like anchoring everyone into what yeah, what this whole thing is. Yeah. And and it's like this thing that's then echoed years later in girls, where there's this beautiful scene where Marnie says to Hannah, I think Hannah's like, oh I thought we would have these like great artistic relationships with men. And then Marnie says like, oh, can't we be that for each other? And Hannah mm. says, that's so depressing. <laughs> and it's not depressing. It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 But then we crash right into one of the best episodes of all time right after that. Oh, I know which one you're going to talk about. I love it. Oh, bejeweled panties, Dolce and Gabbana. And those are some picky fucking Italians. <laughs> The Real Me is one of the greatest episodes of Sex in the City. For anyone who needs reminding, Carrie is asked to be in a fashion show where I think the premise is made up, but it's very believable. So believable. Where, yeah. I believe this is something that you would be asked to do for London Fashion Week. I completely <laughs> oh, believe please. it. No, no. But it's, they have in, in the New York Fashion Week that year, on the runway shows, they ask a real New Yorker to go down the runway, just being themselves, mm. to represent the brand. And they ask Carrie to do Dolce & Gabbana. Chiefly, Margaret Cho asks Carrie. And I, lo- I love Margaret Cho's inclusion. She's so good. She fucking nails this part. She's so good. Fuck me hard. It's so good. And I also love as well... Obviously, Fran Lebowitz, post-Netflix, Scorsese show is very much in the public consciousness. Something that, because obviously you've known about Fran Lebowitz for years and years and years because you're very cool. I'm so glad you said that because I'm getting sick of implying it to people. (laughs) (laughs) You were telling me about Fran Lebowitz years ago. Thank you! I only, only know about Fran Lebowitz because of that Netflix documentary. But something that I love so much is that Fran Lebowitz is apparently at the fashion show there as one of the real people Mm. but we never see her and I said to Caroline that I think there's a real lost opportunity of when Carrie has the freak out about the jeweled knickers that instead of Samantha going backstage it should have just been Fran with a fag in her mouth she should have thunderously stomped towards Carrie Carrie you've got to stop freaking out about the jeweled pennies Oh my God. I've like, I've had a psychological climax just thinking about that and how good it would be. (laughs) Why don't they have Fran Leibovitz in the show? Imagine her with that middle parted hair and her glasses just thunderously (laughs) stomping down the runway in an Uh, amazing suit. Oh my God. I would so trade that Heidi Klum cameo for that Fran Leibovitz cameo. For Fran Leibovitz, I agree. So good. So good. And Carrie is so snooty about Fran Leibovitz. Yes! She's like, oh, I don't want to be like Fran Leibovitz. You should be so fucking lucky. You should be so fucking lucky. How dare you? Carrie, you're not that literary. You need to let go of it, okay? (laughs) Your Fran Leibovitz is very good. Very good. Thanks, um, it's a great episode. I think it's like 
Why is it so good? Because there are lots of like set pieces episode, episodes that happen in this show. But for some reason, this one in particular tickles so many parts of my brain in that mm. it's such a feast for the eyes. Sort of the, the one night stand cameo of the guy who comes in who we're never going to see again, but we can fancy for an episode. He's great. And also, and I don't know why this is, every single time I watch this episode, and it doesn't matter what stage in my cycle I'm at, <laughs> I will burst into tears. At what point? When, when she falls. When she falls and when she picks herself back up. Oh my God, she's fashion roadkill. <laughs> the best line Willie Garson ever delivers. Yes! I think it's a really, really well cut montage that she gets up. I feel very moved when she just like smiles and rolls her eyes at herself yeah. and laughs. And then I think it's music, you know, I think it's yeah. the use of that song. To be that real. Got to be real. And then it cuts into a montage of how her falling over and picking herself back up, how that affects all the other girls. Yeah. It's just beautifully done. It's so well woven together, that that parting montage. Should we do our deep dive? Yes. I can't believe we've left it this long for the deep dive, but we're going to do it. Okay. So after much discussion, we decided that the deep dive this season is going to be one of the most like quietly controversial moments of the whole show where women are like, that episode is mental, which is where Carrie harangues Charlotte for not giving her her engagement ring (laughs) for her to buy her own house. Now I've come round to this episode in in the most recent, yeah, yeah. Like what's interesting about this this rewatch in this podcast is that like, Episodes I used to love, I now find uncomfortable, like the Vogue episode. And episodes I used to find embarrassing, I now see a lot of truth in. Totally. And I think the episode where... So Charlotte... So so Carrie has come fresh off her breakup with Aiden. He has basically served her papers saying she has to either buy the house, buy the apartment or vacate. So she's not only, it's a bit like, as I was saying, with that breakup I mentioned, not only does she have to go through this momentous breakup, she also has to find somewhere new to live. And also where she lives is so much a part of where she is. She's lived there for 10 years, you know. She let this man in and now he's taking it from her in a, in a way, unless she can find $30,000, which she doesn't have, because for some reason she has $700 in her savings account. I think it's just surprising as a viewer because you've seen her spend so much money. Mm. Her outgoings are are so high that you assume that she's someone who's financially much more secure than she is. What I actually like about that, though, is the thing of people who criticise the show are always like, oh, she has such an unrealistic lifestyle. And she does, particularly as the series goes on and her wardrobe gets more and more crazy expensive. But... What makes it make more sense is like, she's a beloved columnist who earns a lot of money. She has a rent-controlled apartment that for some reason is $750 a month, which is insane. The $750, I could For that beautiful apartment. I don't understand. I don't understand. That is insane to me. But um, the fact that like, oh, this is someone who lives in their credit card. Like she, that actually does make it slightly more 
realistic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Slightly. <laughs> Slightly. But but there's this episode where she reali- it really reckons with the financial trouble that she is in. She goes to the bank and they reject her loan. And there's this great scene where she's like, like oh, do you have any assets? And she goes, um, no, but I was named New York Magazine's number one city columnist. I beat Frank Rich. <laughs> and every person in her life, like Miranda, Samantha, even Big... Like really says to her, like, look, I'll I'll help you out here. And the only person who doesn't is Charlotte. And it's this thing where they're they're all in, in Chinatown and they're they're, you know, Miranda and Samantha have this thing of like, look, I'll give you half and I'll give you the other half. And Charlotte doesn't offer it, but she also doesn't say anything and she sort of doesn't engage with the conversation at all because she says she's yeah. uncomfortable with money. And she, Carrie does this thing. And she had, in in her own voiceover, she says it's irrational, which is why we're going to start with it right now. Do you want to be Charlotte or Carrie? I was going to say, I'll be Charlotte because you hate her. <laughs> and I like her. I don't hate her in this series at all. I, I love Charlotte in this series, actually. But yeah, I'll do Carrie. <laughs> okay, I'll be Charlotte. So this is, this is the monologue. As I thought about leaving the apartment that I had lived in for the past decade, I realized how much I would miss it. Through everything, it had always been there for me. And suddenly, I was irrationally angry and I knew just where and who to take it irrationally out on. So we go into the scene knowing it's irrational. She knows it's irrational. Mm. Go. And also, it proves that Sarah Jessica Parker is at her best, like in the agent scenes they're living together, when she's just slightly jangly and pissed off because she, she stands at the door just on edge. Yeah. Hi, what are you doing here? I was just in the neighbourhood. Come on in. Do you want some iced tea or something? Why didn't you offer me the money? (laughs) (laughs) Nuts. Nuts. And I love that Charlotte says, I knew you were going to say that. Because I think every close female friendship, Mm. you, you have those moments where like, a storm has been a brewing. Yeah. And yeah. both parties just are waiting for it to break. And it's almost like both people have like already had the argument several times in their own head. So That's it's it. like in yeah, yeah. The actual physical argument is almost negligible. Yeah. She says, Yeah, I knew you were gonna say that. And Carrie says, I wouldn't take it. Then what does it matter if I offer it or not? Because I would have offered it to you, you're my friend. This is a very Charlotte line. Yeah. Money and friendship don't mix. My father and his friend Paul were never the same. We are not talking about your father and his friend Paul. We are talking about you and your friend me. And for the record, I am aware that I have some financial messiness that I have to clean up. And to that end, I am looking into some freelance magazine work. I have been offered $4 a word at Vogue. That is a lot. Yes, Carrie, it is a lot. (laughs) Yes, Carrie. Most people get two. So yes, I have made some mistakes. And Charlotte, you have made some mistakes. And when you were making those mistakes, I was sitting across from you at the coffee shop, nodding and listening and supporting you. I was not sitting at a Chinese restaurant, turning away when you should have been looking at me. And what kills me is you don't even have to work. You're volunteering. That is such a monologue. And I, what do you have to say about that? This is like one of those amazing arguments in Sex in the City where I think both parties are right. Yeah. Because really what Carrie is saying there in modern parlance is check your fucking privilege. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's almost, it's not even the lack of offering. It's the, you t- 
turned away from me because the notion of money makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And beyond that as well, I think there's a second dimension, which is like you're not even acknowledging how easy this has been for you. This is something you don't have to think about. Like when Charlotte says, I own my apartment, Carrie says pointedly, you got your apartment in your divorce settlement. You did not have to pay for your apartment. And I think that's what I find so powerful about her saying that. Like, in what position are you allowed to be lofty or judgmental about the situation I find myself in where like this is not something due to like sheer luck of who you met and married you do not have to think about this please acknowledge that your that is a daily well a monthly weight that is not on your shoulders that bears on mine so I think that feels very real to me but then equally what feels very real to me is Charlotte's response which is I love you but it's not my job to fix your finances you're a 35 year old woman you need to learn to stand on your own and equally I do understand that like my financial security is nothing to do with you and just because I'm financially secure doesn't mean that I have to worry about your finances on your behalf you're an adult yeah totally you're you're exactly what you said before everyone is right everyone is wrong yeah exactly it's so good and then what's so good about as well is like the scene just turns then where carrie goes what's that on your finger and what the thing that's on her finger is the 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 engagement ring that trey had given her and the episode opens with carrie being like not being able giving aiden back the ring and charlotte saying oh well i love my ring that ring is mine and then having a slight ideological difference over that and Charlotte says, I just wear it when I'm alone in my house. Oh, it's so painful, isn't it? So painful. And then Carrie says, and you're telling me to be more independent. Which, apps, like, fucking, if you're having that kind of a fight where you're, like, really going for the jugular on things, it's a yeah, fucking fair yeah. point. It's like, you're telling me to be independent and that I'm a 35-year-old woman and I should fix my own finances when you married into this comfortable financial situation. How very dare you, <laughs> like... And Charlotte says, it's my ring, I can wear it if I want to. And so what if it makes me feel better? And for the record, the only reason I'm volunteering is no one will hire me. I've called seven galleries. Apparently I have too much experience. And Carrie says, you're right. It's your ring. It's your business. I just got worked up on the walk over here. <laughs> and Charlotte says, appalled. Where well, I think I think at this point, everyone becomes unsympathetic. She says... <laughs> You walked. And Carrie goes, no, I took a $5 cab ride, seven blocks. These shoes pinch my feet, but I love them. I am in a financial cul-de-sac. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I'm going to take the bus. I just hope I'm not on it. And the thing is, I think people hate this scene and people hate this episode. And I get it because... Do they? Why? I like this is definitely one of the episodes that comes up when people talk about um when not even like hating the show but you know joyfully hating on the show of it being so unrelatable and like the idea that you okay, would yeah, you yeah. would expect your friend to help you with this thing and the idea that you would attack her for it but I think even though I couldn't see myself in a space where I could go walk to my friend's house and tell her off for not offering me money At the same time, I think that what this episode is doing is extremely innovative. I agree. It uses, again, with the 
as it does with the fashion show episode, it uses an unrealistic and glamorous thing to talk about a very real and very uncomfortable story. The thing that's difficult as well is like, I'm really, I'm really, you know, I'm really saying something very obvious here, but something that I think becomes difficult in your 30s with money is it's like, well, we all work hard. All of us yeah. work hard. Yeah. And we're all good people. And we're all spending a lot of time in our respective offices and on our respective jobs. Why does she get this and I get that? Yeah. And that is very real in your 30s for the first time in a way that I don't think it is in your 20s. And I, yeah, I applaud them for approaching it. And also the subtext of this is that, like, the reason... Carrie is in the situation is because she didn't want to have a marriage that she didn't feel 100% about. She wanted, if she was going to get married, she wanted to enter into it true of heart. And Charlotte, the only reason she's not in the same situation as Carrie is because she entered into a marriage knowing that there were problems, right? It's kind of, yeah, it's that sort of assumption of having a moral high ground. But the thing, what I think makes this episode genuinely innovative is the sort of denouement when it comes back round at the very, very end and they have that conversation in the coffee shop. Oh, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Shall we go through it really quickly? Yeah. I'm sorry about the other day. I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. You were right. I didn't want to let go of being Mrs. Trey McDougall. I, th- I think you are coping amazingly well and I'm just scared. I know, me too. Wow, we're alone again. I want you to take the ring for your down payment. No, I can't. You love this ring. No, I love what the ring represented. No, you're right. It would make things too complicated. This is a straightforward business proposal, clean and simple. Why do I have all this money if I can't help out a friend? It would be a loan. I would pay you back. I know. I want you to think very carefully about this. I have. Will you be comfortable knowing that it will take me time to pay you back? I will. I've just realised they've written it to sound like marriage vows. Yes! This is what I realised as well. I really appreciate this. I'll pay you back. You know that, right? I do. Oh, it's okay. I trust you. Will you take the ring? It's so, it's so beautiful because it's it's so, and when I say innovative, it's like, it genuinely is. Like, Mm. I'm I'm a writer, you're a writer. I could sit in a room for 100 years and not come up with this. But the fact that they said they've written it like marriage vows and it yeah. ends on, will you take this ring? Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 basically, it's going back to my great American novel. Mm-hmm. It's elevating friendship to a sacrosanct place that we otherwise only reserved for romance, basically. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, and this thing of like, They've both had these huge disappointments. They both have these psychologically weighty rings. And now these ring, this ring gets to mean something else under the covenant of their friendship. Mm. That isn't the way old engagement rings are for marriages that don't work out. That isn't mired in disappointment. It's mired in like this new thing. It means something new now. And I think it's really lovely. And actually, it's completely changed my mind about what I previously thought was a very stupid episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Oh! Oh! This is our most sentimental episode. I know it is. I know it is. Thank God we can rattle through series five because it's only about fucking two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Caroline, dream yeah. boy of the season. Who's yours? I think we're we were very surprised on this rewatch to find that we love Walker Lewis. <laughs> He's so hot. He's so hot. I think I'm confident in saying that nobody will remember who Walker Lewis is. No, no. Fill us in. Walker Lewis is a man who knows Miranda. Is he a lawyer? He's very international. <laughs> that we know. He's a very international man who knows Miranda. She decides to go on a date with him when she's in the very early stages of pregnancy. And she doesn't know. She fights this battle internal battle of whether she should have like one last hurrah fuck before she's visibly pregnant he is so gorgeous he bit of an aside looked up the actor on twitter he's also a part-time fireman oh my god are you serious (laughs) fit 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 fit. um i don't know about you i was very surprised at how prudish I feel <gasps> I know. about Miranda fucking a man when she's pregnant with another man's child. I know. It actually, like, it genuinely feels very groundbreaking when they're doing it. it. Re- I'm, like, very disappointed in myself for being prudish about <laughs> I'm disappointed in myself. I was like, oh, but bit tacky. I know. Why do we feel that? Isn't that weird that that's, that's our... That's our line. Like, last episode, we were going hard on how you should let any old man piss on you. A, and a this episode, of, we're like, you should you should allow for a bucket of piss for any, for any hot guy. And this episode, we're like, oh, Miranda, be a lady. <laughs> I know, so interesting. Um, yes, he's something like an Eastern European quality to him, or something. This he's got really sort of like square, lean, beautiful features, and he just looks. Like really muscular and lean. There's something about him is just really fucking hot. Do you know what? He's got a great voice as well. He's got this deep, deep, raspy voice. Great voice. And there's this thing where they've had this great date, and he and it's it's a lot to do with the how it's shot as well. He kisses her and his hands go down her body and he just touches her tummy a little bit. Yeah, and she recoils. But there's something about the softness with which he touches her versus how yeah. how tough he looks as a guy that's really hot. And they have a reunion shag, you know. Did they? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad. At, at Carrie's at Carrie's book party, she takes him as her date. Oh, I can't wait to meet him again. I can't believe I've never really noticed him before this rewatch. But then yeah, he's the fact so that hot. like I actually love, even though I did have that slight prudish moment of like, Miranda, you're pregnant with another man's internal moment of like slut shaming. I did sort of love that she just gets to shag him and there's really, she gets no punishment for it the way that Miranda is often punished. It's just like, yeah, she had her last shag. I totally agree. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Is he our man of the season? He's my man of the season. I do think that this will be the only season in which... Big will be a legitimate nominee for Man of the Season. Yes, so true. I have to say as well, I think because they're all embroiled in, in, well, Charlotte and Carrie Carrie are, they're in long-term relationships. There aren't that many contenders. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, and Richard is horrible and a sadist, so he's not in. (laughs) Um, There's one scene I really like at the very end of Big as well, just while we're wrapping up our big storyline, which you got a lot of airtime in this episode. Um, 
where in the very last episode where she goes over to his apartment and she finds out that he's moving to Napa and um, he is going through his record collection and he takes out Moon River. And obviously it's, oh. very, it's very cheesy and she thinks it's very cheesy. But he does this thing, which, you know how you said in the last episode where your number one thing for a guy is to be mischievous? Yeah, yeah. My number one thing is for them to just be really into things. Yeah, yeah. And there's this thing where, like, he, she's kind of cringing at how cringy Henry Mancini is. But he's sort of, like, on his, like, haunches a bit. He's, like, crouched down and he's listening. And the performance is so good. He's really listening. And he goes, like, sh- he's doing that thing that people do when they really want the other person to connect with how much they love a song. And they're, like, shh. Yeah. Oh, look, this com- it's coming up. It's coming up two drifters I I, th- I used to think it was two twisters I, and like it's very sweet and it's the and first you got horny for Big yeah it was the first time I've ever fancied Big was him because he's being passionate about something that's not like a restaurant or a cigar or a supermodel <laughs> or clothes or, yeah, yeah it's and something soulful what's so good about that is that it's the it's one of the many references to Breakfast at Tiffany's that, that, that the show makes right yeah like Moon River is a song that Audrey Hepburn's character Holly Golightly sings on the fire escape with her guitar. It's the scene that promote like prompted so many teen girls, including you and me, I think, to buy acoustic guitars yeah. around the world. And yeah. and she's on the fire escape and she's playing the song. And its place in the movie is very much this creature who is so unknowable. And so charming, yet so distant. It is the one Mm. moment in which she is like fully vivid and seen and a human and a vulnerable person. And weirdly, that's what Big is doing in that scene when he's listening to it. And he's, it's a Breakfast Tiffany's reference, but he's Holly Golightly. Like he's the the remote thing, you know? Caroline, he is Holly Golightly. (laughs) And it makes me really love him. And also... I love that he's wearing a normal t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. A normal t-shirt for Chris Nuff. <laughs> it's what he deserves. It's what he deserves. <laughs> Good comic dialogue and normal t-shirts. <laughs> well, speaking of t-shirts, tell me what your outfit of the season is. I love all of the clothes that she wears in the money episode in Ring-a-Ding-Ding. Because it begins yeah. with her in this beautiful print dress. this like big blue and red, vivid graphic print summer dress. I yeah. love Carrie's summer dresses. And also there's this weird scene where she goes to Big's office and she looks like a 12-year-old who's doing a project on the economy. And she's like, <laughs> I once heard, I once read, you had $2 million and you turned it into $20 million. How did you oh, do that? I that scene. I hate that scene, but I love that outfit. Her with a high pony is so good. A high pony and the white little suit with the white gloves. Hate the scene, love the outfit. Love the outfit. Mm -hmm. Those are my outfits of the season, I think. I have many, I'm afraid. This is my favourite season for fashion. I love the Dolce floral bustier maxi dress that she Mm -hmm. wears. Gorgeous. uh, In The Real Me. Which is currently selling on open for vintage for <gasps> cool thirteen thousand pounds. Wow. I love the outfit when she goes into the bar and Aiden's playing Jax with the twenty something 
girl. Really? With a flat wearing, cap? Yeah. she's. Is it a flat cap? She's wearing... No, no, no. That's the next day. I love it when she's wearing a crop top, a stripe pencil skirt, and a Gucci mm. bum bag. Don't love that, but love that you love it. Doesn't do it for Doesn't you. For I love it. That's uh, one of my many post-lockdown inspirations, that outfit. I love, I think it might be my favourite outfit in Sex and City of All Time, when she goes out for the steak dinner with Big and she's wearing a green satin mini skirt and she sees a rat and she turns round. It's by Vivian Westwood and there's a big white frilly bustle on her ass. That is, it's beautiful. She looks so gorgeous in it as well because she's wearing that white shirt up top. It's such a you outfit. I can really imagine I love it. me meeting you in Soho for a drink with that outfit on, with that little nappy coming out of it. Yeah, Monica as well says it looks like a diaper. I would walk into Soho and see you and like Mrs. Cohen, you would say affectionately, that's a crazy outfit. <laughs> That's a crazy outfit. That's a crazy outfit. I, I'm going to rattle through. I've got so many. I love her in the white dress with the day glow underwear when she's at the gay club. Yes. I love her in the white strapless gown at the black and white ball with the chandelier earrings. Ugh, so I love good. her at Vogue in the pinstripe suit that I, and, the, and the brooch that I assume is Vivian Westwood with all those beautiful folds. And the best shoes of all time in Sex and City that I have searched high and low for. The final episode where she goes on the date with Big and she wears the Christian Louboutin pink ruffle sandals that Miranda breaks her water over. Yes, yes. I have to say, in a series that pretends to be, like in a show that pretends to be about shoes and where so many of the shoes are disgusting... Caroline and I cannot believe how crap. much money they spend on these Clark's sandals. They look so crap. I just, I'm not a shoe person <laughs> anyway. I don't really like shoes uh, as a thing. They're not my thing. But those pink Louboutin sandals are delicious. The, kind of, the scalloped delicious. sort of velvet hang on them. Love them. Gorgeous. Love it. Can't find them anywhere. Cannot find them anywhere. I hate the coat she wears with them though. I hate that coat as well. And I've had so many rows with Farley about this because that's her dream coat. And I think it looks like a Tudor coat. No, it looks like this weird, like, naughty's sort of genie material thing. No, I don't like it. I hate it. I'm so glad you agree with me on that. Thank you. What is your clangor of the season? I'm afraid to say it's fashion related. (laughs) It's in the real me when she's out for a cocktail with Stanford and she is wearing a white oh my strapless God. bra over a black Insane. Vest. The strapless bra heard around the world. Incredible. Don't understand at all. How about you? Mad. I think, okay, this is actually not Carrie's clanger, but the clanger of, of the whole show maybe, which is something I realised when I was watching this time around. The amount of times people have sex in this show and then turn to one another afterwards and go, that was great. Oh my God. Caroline mentioned this to me the other day and I couldn't believe that she picked up on this because you said to me quite earnestly, have you ever had sex with someone and have them say to you or you say to them breathlessly, that was really great. (laughs) That was great. 
Why do they do It's after like every fuck. They yeah. say, that was really great. That was really great. That was great. <laughs> I think it's because Sex and the City is such an unsexy show. Like most of the sex is played for laughs. Yeah. That when people are having actually good sex, they really need to say. <laughs> that was really great. That was really great. That was great <laughs> sex we had. And, and they'll like call each other and be like, great sex the other night like that was pretty that was pretty special the other night <laughs> that was who really, talks really like great. that <laughs> this has been Sentimental in the City I've been Karen O'Donoghue you've been Dolly Alderton this has been an over emotional two hours um, and I hope no one gets in touch I love you I love you too <laughs> Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com